you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to be in verses 10 through 32. Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. And the title of this sermon is Our Gracious Heritage. Well, something that I've never done before in my life is preach three genealogies in three weeks until today. Um, Two weeks ago, I preached the genealogy known as the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, Last week, I actually preached the genealogy from Genesis 5 at my grandmother's funeral on Friday. And today, we'll be finishing out Genesis chapter 11 with another genealogy. And surprisingly, I've found each and every one of them to be rich, uh, full of gold. But before we dive into this text, I want to take a brief moment to remind us uh, of all we've seen and learned so far in Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, Today, we'll be finishing out this section of Genesis, and we won't be coming back to it until after Easter. So I just want to remind us of how crucial Genesis 1 through 11 is to the Christian worldview and to the rest of Scripture as a whole. In Genesis 1 and 2, we were introduced, first and foremost, to God himself, Elohim, the sovereign, transcendent God, the God who created everyone and everything. We learned about the creation of man and woman in the image of God giving mankind value and worth. We saw the institution of marriage between one man and one woman by God. We saw the creation mandate for us to be fruitful and multiply and to spread God's image all over the face of the earth. God revealed himself as a faithful and generous God who gave Adam and Eve everything and graciously told them not to eat from the one tree that he knew would destroy them. God established there the covenant of works. All of that is vital to a Christian worldview, and it's found in the first two chapters of Genesis. But then came Genesis 3. Satan entered the garden, questioned God's character, twisted God's words, and deceived Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve believed the lies that Satan told. They took of the fruit and they ate. They sinned, and sin entered the world. Everything began to break. But God graciously and mercifully sought them out. He began with curses. He cursed Satan and made a glorious promise that one day a seed of Eve would crush the head of Satan, the serpent. He then cursed the ground and Adam and Eve themselves and all of mankind. But because of that that promise in Genesis 3.15, they weren't without hope, were they? God killed an animal. He shed its blood to cover up their nakedness and their shame. In Genesis 3, we we learned a Christian doctrine of sin and the beginnings of a doctrine of grace and atonement. In Genesis 4 through 11, we've seen sin spreading, affecting everyone and everything. 
We saw sin getting worse and worse, leading up to the flood. We saw sin, judgment, and hope. But that nagging old garden problem just wouldn't go away. Even righteous Noah repeated the sin of Adam. He wrongfully took of the fruit, ending up naked and ashamed once again. The world's sin problem was alive and well. Noah wasn't the solution to the problem. This truth is also vital to a Christian worldview. Each human, even the humans in the godly line that we've been following, each human inherits original sin from Adam. Then they sin because of that. We have to understand that if the rest of the Bible in our world today is going to make any sense at all. So, Noah has three sons, and Genesis chapter 10 went out of the way to show us that every human being came from one man, but that mankind was dispersed into various geographies and languages and tribes. We learned how and why that happened in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, last week. Do you see just how important these first 11 chapters of Genesis are to a Christian worldview or understanding of our world today? They're foundational. So today, we come to the end of this section of Genesis. But what we'll see is this is both an ending and a new beginning. So with that, let's dive into our text. Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. This is the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years, And had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. 
the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. I want to help us remember a structural tool that Moses has been using the entire book just to show us how he's organized each each section and where he's going. You'll remember it's the Hebrew word toledot, the generations of. Each time he uses that word, it's like a subject heading alerting us to the fact that he's moving the story along to a new focal point. He does this 11 different times in the book of Genesis as a whole. Well, in today's text, we actually see two Toledotes in verse 10 and then again in verse 27. So with that in mind, those will be our two points for today's sermon. Point one, the generations of Shem in verses 10 through 26. And point two, the generations of Terah in verses 27 through 32. Point one, the generations of Shem. Remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham sinned against his father Noah and was cursed. Shem and Japheth honored their father and covered him up. Shem was blessed. Japheth was blessed through the tents of Shem. Then, chapter 10 showed us how through those sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, everything was spread out. We got a view of the lineages of the entire world. But here, in chapter 11, Moses is wanting to refocus us, not on the entire world, but instead on one line, the line of blessing the line of Shem. So we're going from a 30,000-foot view to a zoomed-in view. Moses, for the rest of the book of Genesis, is going to trace this line. And even within this line, he's going to focus on very, very specific tributaries. Notice verse 16 in our text today. It says, When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. Contrast that with chapter 10, verse 25. To Eber, so same name that we just read in chapter 11, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Do you see that? Chapter 10 is an expanded genealogy, whereas this is zeroing in on smaller and smaller lineages. Shem, and not Ham or Japheth. Peleg, and not Joktan, who seems like he was part of Nimrod's tower-building project instead of glorifying God. This line is the elect line that God will bring the promised seed through. We'll see this the rest of the book of Genesis. 
one son and not the one you always think it's going to be the son will get the blessing over the other one time and time and time and time again. And even this is meant to bring us hope. We're meant to see rays of hope here. Remember, the Genesis cycle is sin, judgment, hope. Sin, judgment, hope. Over and over and over again. And what did we see last week? The people sinned at the Tower of Babel. God brought judgment in confusing their languages and scattering them. But there's still a righteous remnant. There's still a line of blessing. There's still hope. Martin Luther, the great reformer, found great comfort in this truth. He writes this. He says, Lest we suppose that Satan had been allowed to remove the sunlight of the word utterly from the world and to suppress the church, the generation of the Holy Fathers is set before us to show us that by the mercy of God, the remnants were preserved and the church was not completely wiped out. Can you imagine just how comforting that must have been in Luther's day? He's looking around him at all of the heresy and all of the debauchery, even in the church. And it must have felt lonely. He's wondering, is anyone faithful? Was anyone willing to stand for the truth? Was the church going to be stamped out and extinguished? No. Even in the darkest days, even in the days of judgment, God was preserving a line of seeds. And the same is true of Jesus' church. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus tells Peter that the gates of hell won't prevail against his church that's built on the gospel. Nothing can thwart God's plan of redemption. He has always preserved for himself a people. Isn't that encouraging? It's easy to look around us in today's culture and see Christianity as a small minority. That's increasingly the truth. But God will preserve his church. He did in the flood. He did after Babel. And he does today. This genealogy is meant to be a genealogy of hope. And to highlight this, Moses wants us to contrast this genealogy with the genealogy from Genesis chapter 5. In in that genealogy in Genesis 5, there's 10 generations from Adam to Noah. Surprise, surprise, in this genealogy, there's 10 generations from Shem to Abram. There's meant to be a parallel there. But do you remember the cadence from the genealogy in Genesis 5? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Look at this genealogy in Genesis 11. That line, and he died, is absent. And it's not that these people didn't die. They did. But Moses wants us to see this genealogy as hopeful. It's a move away from death and toward promise, according to Alan P. Ross. Fourth in this genealogy, and 14th from Adam, 
is the name Eber. So 14th from Adam. That's two times seven for all of the math whizzes. The number of perfection. We learned two weeks ago that Eber is where we get the name Hebrew. Further, we see that Abram, at the end of this genealogy, is seven generations from Eber, making him 21 generations from Adam, three times seven. Kent Hughes comments that this all points to the perfections of God's divine plan. Do you see that? God's plan is moving right along. Also, I've briefly commented on this, but the halfway point of this genealogy of Shem's descendants is the name Peleg, one of Eber's sons. Peleg is generation five of ten from Shem to Abram. Shem, Arpachshad, Shelah, Eber, and Peleg. His brother Joktan's line results in Babel, whereas Peleg's line eventually results in Abraham. I love what Kenneth Matthews writes here. He says this highlights the difference in the two inner branches of the Shemite family, one leading to disgrace and the other leading to grace. Do you see it? Moses and God are wanting us to see from a very early stage that this blessing that he continues to talk about, this blessing doesn't simply have to do with bloodline. Joktan, just like Peleg, has Shemite blood, but he wasn't part of the preserved line, the line of grace. The same is true for us today. As a pastor, I get to talk to a lot of people about their Christianity. And I'm amazed at how often I hear well-meaning but often confused people say things like this. I've always been a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. Or my parents were Christian, and so I'm a Christian. That may well be the case. Their parents probably were Christians. But unfortunately, that's not the cause of their children being Christians. I wish it was. But I know lots and lots of godly Christian parents who have unbelieving children. Praise God for Christian parents. What an absolute blessing for Christian parents to raise their kids hearing the gospel and hearing about Jesus. But hear this loud and clear. No one, no one becomes a Christian because of their bloodline or their family of origin. We become Christians, we become part of the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Peleg is a part of the line of grace. More hope right in the center of this genealogy, even amidst the confusion of Babel. God's promise from Genesis 3.15 still stands. It's still alive and well and being sovereignly preserved. From Peleg to Abram is five generations. And again, we'll we'll see a similar pattern to what we saw in Genesis chapter 5 in the genealogy. Genesis 5, ten generations, and it ends like this. Genesis 5 verse 32. 
After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Side note, this wasn't the birth order of Noah's sons. We know that Japheth was the oldest, Ham the youngest, and Shem the middle child. But in this list, Shem is listed first because of his importance to the narrative. We'll see a parallel in chapter 11. Okay, Genesis 5, there's, there's ten generations ending in three sons. How about Genesis 11? Ten generations, and how does it end? Three sons, verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Again, Abram isn't the oldest child here. I won't go into detail, but this matters with some of the chronology later. But Moses places Abram first to say to us this morning, key in on this guy. He's going to be important. So, there's incredible symmetry between these two genealogies. One ending with Noah, who God used to restart the world. And one ending with Abram who God will use as the fountainhead of the patriarchs and blessing to the nations. So point one, the generations of Shem. Point two, the generations of Terah in verses 27 through 32. Again, verse 27 begins, Now these are the generations of Terah, alerting us to the fact that Moses is entering a new subject heading. While it's certainly connected to the previous one, he wants us to shift gears a little bit. Like with Noah, we're going to zero in on one line and one man here, the line of blessing, the line of Abram. But before we get too comfortable about this line, thinking somehow that these are the good people and that everyone else is bad, I want you to remember that I've titled this sermon, Our Gracious Heritage. Our Gracious Heritage. I didn't title it, Our Godly Heritage, or Our Good Heritage. What am I poking at? Well, here it is. We come from a line of idolaters. We come from a line of idolaters. You see, in chapter 12, we'll begin following the amazing story of Abram. But here, at the end of chapter 11, Moses wants us to know exactly where Abram came from. Look at the text, verses 27 and 28. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. What do we know about Ur of the Chaldeans? Well, it's in southern Mesopotamia, and guess what? Ur was the center for the worship of the moon god Sin, where they built a ziggurat for that purpose, to worship the moon god. A ziggurat is a high terraced building 
which was a shrine or a temple for a specific pagan god. In this case, the moon god. Kent Hughes comments, he says, The city, meaning Ur, was dominated by a massive three-stage ziggurat built by Ur-Namu during the beginning of the second millennium B.C. Each stage was colored distinctively, with the top level bearing the silver one-roomed shrine to the moon god. The royal cemetery reveals that ritual burials were sealed with the horrors of human sacrifice. Ur of the Chaldeans. You might say, well, okay, that's where they lived, but it doesn't mean that they were actually moon god worshipers. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. What are these names? Richard Phillips writes, Terah's adherence to this idolatry is further seen in the names of his son's wives. Sarai, meaning princess, was possibly taken from Shuratu, who was the female consort of the moon god. Milcah means queen and comes from Milkatu, a title for Ishtar, the moon god's daughter. It would be like in modern day if you met a family who named their kids Zeus, Ares, Artemis, and Aphrodite. You'd know, oh, they're really into this Greek mythology thing and into their gods. But if there's any doubt, Joshua makes this all explicit in Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, so speaking of Genesis 11, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abram and Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. This family was entrenched in pagan idolatry. We also know that Sarai was Abram's half-sister, born of a different mother, and that Nahor, according to this text, married his niece. So what we have here is an inbred family of idolaters. Moses wants us to understand that what's about to happen after this, in Genesis 12 and following, isn't because this was a godly family who was seeking hard after Yahweh. Quite the opposite. Yes, this is the line of blessing. But it's not because they're an exception to the rule seen at the Tower of Babel. God's people are idolatrous sinners just like the rest of humanity here. God's choice of them is all of grace. It's undeserved. Let's keep going. Verses 30 and 31. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran... 
They settled there. This is a dramatic move. <laughs> they're, they're leaving Ur. So, is this Terah getting his family out of the moon-worshipping capital of the world? Is that what's happening? Not exactly. To understand this, we need to look at the timeline again. In verse 1 of chapter 12, we read this. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So the Lord, Yahweh, calls Abram to leave his country and his kindred to go to a new land. That country that he was in was Ur of the Chaldeans. This call in chapter 12, verse 1, came when they were still there in Ur. How do we know this? Look what God says in Genesis 15, verse 7. Genesis 15, verse 7. And he, meaning God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from where? Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. How about the Levite confession in Nehemiah 9, verse 7? Nehemiah 9, 7. It says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of where? Ur of the Chaldeans. And gave him the name Abraham. Fast forward to the New Testament. Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. This is the most clear and explicit timeline that we have. Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. Acts 7, verses 2 through 4. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans to live in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Do you see that? God's call to Abram was when they were still in Ur before they moved to Haran. So it seems that Abram heard this word of the Lord, he heard the call when they're in Ur, and he convinces his father Terah to leave, and not the other way around. They pack up. Who all's with them? Terah, Abram, Lot, and Sarai. Nahor, Terah's other living son apparently stays in Ur. They head out. They heed God's call. A happy ending, right? Not so fast. Look at the text again. Verse 31. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they Settled there. Ah. God called Abram to go to Canaan, the promised land. But they don't make it. They get to Haran, and they settled there. Remember those words from last week's text. 
chapter 11, verse 2. This is another example of of doing the opposite of what God had commanded. And if you're wondering, Haran was another known center for moon worship. And yes, Terah named one of his sons after that city. So Abram stays there until his father dies, and then proceeds to obey God fully and go to Canaan. The rest of that story will begin in chapter 12, which we'll pick up again after Easter. So let's ask the question, what are we meant to learn from this? What are we meant to learn from this? Number one, none of us, none of us, even those of us who are part of the line of blessing, the people of God, none of us are good. Romans, 3, chapter, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 makes that abundantly clear. No one is good, not one. Moses wants us to see this truth in the family of Abram. They're not good, godly people who are seeking the Lord. Not at all. Because of our sin nature and our sin in reality, None of us naturally seek the Lord. We, like Abram's family, are all idolaters at heart. But God is gracious. He sovereignly chooses to call Abram out. So, if what I've just said about Abram's idolatrous background is true, if that's true... This choice of Abram must be unconditional. It's not based on Abram's good deeds or his previous decision to follow God. In other words, God is making the first move to call Abram out and to leave his idolatrous ways and to follow him into a new land and into blessing. This call isn't a whole lot different for you and me today. Just like God called Abram to leave Ur and to go to Canaan, he calls us to leave our own idols, to leave our sin, and to follow him to eternal life and to eternal blessing in Christ. These things always, always go together. In other words, Abram had to leave behind Ur to get to Canaan. He had to leave his former life of idolatry and sin to receive God's blessing. You can't keep living your old way of life and follow Christ. Jesus says this much, doesn't he? Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, famous passage. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. To follow Jesus, you have to metaphorically die. Die to yourself. Die to sin. But as we follow Abram's story going forward... I think you'll see that it's all worth it. Yes, he leaves behind everything he knows. 
But what he gets in, in God's blessing is so much better than that. The same's true with Christ. Make no mistake, he's calling you to repent, to leave behind your old way of life and sin. He's calling you to take up your cross and to die to yourself. But the benefits of following Christ far outweigh the cost. He offers eternal life. He offers peace. He offers complete satisfaction and contentment in him. He offers joy. The list could go on and on. If God is calling you to follow Christ today, he won't let you down. Turn from sin and trust in Christ. He's a treasure that's worth giving up everything else for. If you'd like to talk to someone about this after the service, we'll be up here in the front. We'll also be out at the table out there. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to hear about what God's doing in your soul and answer any questions that you might have. Christ is worth giving up everything else for. Finally, we can't ignore the warning of Terah to us either. Terah makes it out of Ur, but never to Canaan. He settles in Haran. He's influenced by God's word, but never surrenders his heart and his life. He never fully abandons his former way of living. He's simply moved from one idolatrous city to another. Matthew Henry writes this. He says, Many reach to Haran and yet fall short of Canaan. They are not far from the kingdom of God and yet never come in. In other words, it's possible to come to church but never surrender your whole life to Christ. Simply attending church or even doing good works or good deeds can be another form of idolatry, but cloaked in something that looks pretty good. Hear this loud and clear. Christ isn't calling you halfway. He's calling you to leave Ur and to go to Canaan. If that's you today, if you're still in Ur, or if you've made it halfway to Haran. I invite you to do exactly what Abraham eventually did, to obey God's call. How do you do that? By faith. You do it by faith. Look what Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10 says. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. It says, by faith or belief. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, meaning Canaan. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Every single one of us 
every single one of us, like Abram and his family, are idolaters. We've sinned and rebelled against a holy God. Because of that, we all deserve death and eternal destruction. But Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a death that we deserve. He was buried, and three days later rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death itself. He did that to offer us Canaan, the promised land, eternal life in heaven with him. And we can access all of that, just like Abram in this text, by grace, through faith. Through trusting in Christ and his work on the cross for us. What a gracious heritage we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.